Bienvenue, mes petits étudiants en dentisterie. Je suis sûr que vous avez hâte de commencer à collecter ces dents des os forges. C'est dommage que nous n'ayons pas éventé Prater ici chez le Léon des Souris. Cela nous évitera tout ce tracas. Bien sûr, avant de se lancer dans cette aventure, quelques règles à parcourir. L'aventure suivante peut contenir un langage qui ne convient pas aux jeunes souris et aux sang. La discussion de la mère est conseillée. L'antique de Ernest et Celestine sera révélée. À la fois, le film et les livres. Méfiez-vous si vous ne voulez pas être gâté. Les opinions exprimées sont celles de Lutz et Noah uniquement et ne réfléchissent pas nécessairement le podcast de Dub Talk dans son ensemble. Alors, rassemblez vos cahiers et accordions et bien amusez-vous de cet épisode spécial d'une aventure animée française. Hello and welcome to Dub Talk, a show where a bunch of nerds get together and talk about the latest and greatest in English voiceover. Tonight actually marks a very special occasion. Unless you count the Dark Crystal back a couple months ago, this is actually the first time the Dub Talk podcast will be dealing with a dub that is not in Japanese. That is correct. We've finally decided that, you know what, Japan is great. Japan's a fun little island, but we need to branch off on our international journey. It's time to get some custom stamped. It's time to get some passports filled out here. Let, let us stretch out to the other great countries of the world, like Texas or Arkansas, right? <laughs> uh, tonight, we are expanding our horizons beyond the land of the rising sun, and we are taking a little trip to the land of baguettes and red, white, and blue flags that aren't the same as ours. <laughs> That's right. We are heading to Gay Pali to cover the 2012 Academy Award-nominated film Ernest and Celestine. Sacre bleu, bring on this, this mouse and bear movie. I've been looking forward to this much time, much as I enjoy stroking my comically long mustache and eating cheese. <laughs> Although, I, I, I have been advocating... <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I have been advocating to also cover... Uh, uh, God, blank on the word. Um, Ladybug, Miraculous Ladybug, which is also a French cartoon with an English dub. So, send in your votes. Tell the editors of this podcast that we want that covered as well. Like, comment, subscribe. <laughs> Fuel that notification bell. Anyway, so yes, we're um, talking about um, a film that you may have heard of if you follow the Academy Awards. Um, also, if you're a big animation fan, because this this did have a lot of buzz going around when it first came out, when it first produced uh, back in 2012, and then when the dub came out a couple of years later. Um, this is. Uh, this is kind of a big moment. I'm, I'm really glad we get to talk about this. So thank you, Roots. Thank you for initiating this production. 
Oh, um, should probably also mention before we, like, actually dig into the meat of this episode, um, a little bit of a fun fact. Uh, the Ernest and Celestine episode of Dub Talk has been in the works for over two years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally this was going to be produced, uh, right after I had acquired audio editing software and I had fully fledged myself into the world of editing the Dub Talk podcast. Uh, my original plan was to do a bunch of one-on-one episodes with a bunch of the crew so that I could just ease into learning the audio and video editing software that I picked up so that I'd be a little more efficient with it when I got to four people cruise and then Devilman Crybaby kind of happened and all of them ended up getting kind of shuffled off and onto the side and we're finally getting around to them because Last Exile was recorded a couple weeks ago Mm-hmm. Team Paw Patrol <laughs> Oh, that crew is going to have a lot of fun later. That they are. Um, so, yeah, this, um, uh, I guess we should probably introduce who we are uh, to the, the listening audience in case they, they can't read the description in the, the bottom part of the video. That's fair. Um, I am your host tonight, Roots of Justice, and joining me here um, in kind of the typical summer at the movies kind of format where it's one on one. Um, joining me is Noah Clue. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so, uh, basically when Roots said that he wanted to talk about this particular movie, which is not Japanese, and happens to be, it happened to be one of my favorite pieces of animation that came out that year, I told him, man, I love you, but if you do this episode without me, the podcast resident global animation aficionado, I, I can't send you a Christmas card anymore. I'm sorry. You're, you're just going to have to survive without that or my love and affection for the rest of your life. Uh, so luckily he buckled <laughs> to that demand. Those were, ver- those were very reasonable demands. I think so. And uh, I'm glad, too, that you picked this particular one because there's, I mean, uh, G-Kids, the ones who license this, um, we'll get into the dub in a bit, but the licensors of this have really made strides in the last five years, I'd say, in becoming a household name for bringing... Uh, global animation to America. I remember the first time I heard of them was all the way back in 2010 when uh, The Secret of Kells was nominated for an Academy Award. That's an Irish movie that they uh, licensed for America. And ever since then, they've just been hitting it out of the park with uh, the applicate app. Sorry, the reacquisition of Ghibli canon with uh, The Illusionist, with A City, uh, A Cat in Paris, with a handful of our movies that you could probably look up. Uh, this being this one in particular, I was super glad they picked up because I didn't think anyone would actually pick up a French movie. Luckily, they did, and so now we are going to talk about it. And that we are. Um, though first and foremost, I know we have the the spoiler warning at the very beginning of the episode, but um, for those who are uninitiated with the plot of Ernest and Celestine. Allow me to give you a little bit of a description, courtesy of IMDb. There is a world where the bears live above ground in their cities, and the rodents live below in their underground ones in mutual fear and hate. However, Celestine, an apprentice mouse dentist, finds at least momentary common cause with Ernest, 
a poor street bear musician that gets them rejected from both of their respective worlds. In spite of this misfortune, the Exiles find a growing friendship between themselves as their respective talents flower because of it. Despite this, their quietly profound challenge to the founding prejudices of their worlds cannot be ignored, as the authorities track them down. When this happens, Ernest and Celestine must stand up for their love in the face of such bigotry and achieve the impossible. All I'm guilty of is being friends with a bear, and that's not a crime, is it? What? How dare you? Well, all of you were just being, just prejudiced. Yeah, Celestine is my friend. That's what you accuse me of, for being friends with a mouse? Bears above and mice below, is that it? Is that really what you want to teach your kids? So yeah, this is uh, obviously a very thinly coated uh, uh, race allegory, I'm assuming, right? It, it seems that way. If, the, if not race, just in general, you know, because as described, Ernest is kind of a poor bear in this city of somewhat, it seemed somewhat affluent bears and like a, it's very felt fitting. Like kind of a 1940s-ish kind of France analog. Yeah, it's definitely on the more low-key uh, technology side, um, and the uh, the entire uh, premise of it being uh, a world of talking bears and mice is perfectly fitting for us to talk about in 2020, because in case you haven't noticed, uh, there's been a lot of furry content in this year. I mean, between Beastars and BNA and the Cats movie coming out the previous year, uh, this has just been a wash of movies for people who love talking, dancing, singing animals, so I'm... I don't think that there would have been a better year for us to finally cover this. <laughs> there we go. And um, as a, a note of the origins of this, before we get talking into the dub, um, and sure. the style of this was based very heavily on the original books. This was actually based on a series of children's picture books. In case you couldn't guess, this was not this was not based on like a super hardcore graphic novel of any kind. No, this was based on a 1980 series of picture books by. Uh, Belgian author Gabrielle Vincent and uh, her her signature style of the watercolor illustrations and the very slice of lifey style of the books, which all of them don't have very much connection to each other and they're very standalone and they're they're very stories at bedtime kind of uh, in case you couldn't tell from the um, the illustration style. So that wouldn't necessarily adapt into a feature film very well. In fact, um, Roots, are you familiar with? Um, I'm going to list a couple of other. European children's books that have been adapted to cartoons before. Paddington. Yep. Kipper the Dog. I remember Kipper the Dog. I I don't remember the cartoon though. I remember the books. Okay. Well, but okay, that's also a good example. Um Spot the Dog. Yep. So yeah, again, all of- more the books than the cartoon. Which is perfectly apt, because um, those books were all uh, British picture books that, when adapted into cartoon version, they didn't make them into full 30-minute episode TV episodes or uh, even try to go to feature length. Um, except for the Paddington movie, which obviously that did come out not too long ago. But back when those books were popular and they were made to cartoons in the 70s and 80s, they opted to make them into short five-minute cartoons, because that was more fit to the picture book style that they were based on so it was kind of a challenge to think how would you turn a similar type book with Ernest and Celestine into a feature length film and the way they did it is they they didn't take like a bunch of 
uh, original picture books and like glue them together. They actually brought on an author. They brought a French author named Daniel Penec, who is both a, a French novelist, like he wrote Eye of the Wolf, and he's also a children's teacher to kind of flesh out the whole world and turn it into this one continuous story. So that's why it doesn't feel like other adaptations where you can clearly tell like where one story ended and another one started and they kind of just glued three stories together. This is very much an original story set in the world of these uh, original picture book characters. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. And with that being said, um, I guess uh, we should probably confront the fact that yes they find they did adapt this into english so that we uh, could enjoy it in our native language all right and there we go and obviously if a if a property is being localized from another language into english we'd have an adr crew to talk about that we would um so in a fun little bit of happenstance um in terms of the actual adr crew we're not actually traveling that far out of our wheelhouse. This dub was produced by NYAV Post. Our director is Michael Sinter Nicholas, who you would know his directorial work from things such as My My Miracle, Time of Eve, and Lou Over the Wall. And the English adaptation or script writing uh, was done by Stephanie Shea who you would know her writing style from such things as Paradise Kiss. Please, Anaplex and Funimation, stream Paradise Kiss. <laughs> um, I have no, no idea why that particular series is unlicensed right now. I mean, like, either... Okay, either the original studio is, like, holding on to the rights and it's too expensive to license, or there's something going on with the Franz Ferdinand song in the end credits. There's got, there's got to be some reason. Or it's just a demand thing. I don't know. But somebody please do it. See, we thought that um, for the longest time about Paranoia Agent, and we recently found out that, no, it was just kind of a holdup between the, the Satoshi Kona state. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. Um, she's also known for such uh, scripts as Weathering With You and Mobile Suit Gundam, Thunderbolt. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Noah. Um... How did you feel about the general adaptation? You gonna start with me? Is there someone else you're gonna pass along to? <laughs> A whole audience of two people. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'll, I'll trim that out. This is. Um, I'm glad we're getting to talk about this. Uh, as a dub talk episode, because as much as I love uh, the look and the overall plot of this film. Uh, I'm not shy of saying that the original film has some story issues to it, because, um, and as you will find out if you watch the behind-the-scenes extras on the DVD, which you should definitely buy that DVD, um, they talk about oh, how... absolutely. That, yes. The writer, uh, the original novelist, like I said, uh, Daniel Penek, was uh, good about uh, writing his original story for this, but he also gave the directors a lot of leeway in doing things as they were. So uh, if you've seen the movie, you'll know that there's a lot of sentimental, sweet, heartwarming moments. But there's also a lot of slapstick, cartoony moments as well. A lot of chases, a lot of action, a lot of shenanigans. And those feel like a compromise between the direction, uh, the directors who wanted more of a cartoonish movie and the writer who had more of a mind to do justice by get, uh, the original author. Fun fact, uh, the scriptwriter for this knew the original book's author. Um, he actually 
had her read those books to his children when they were young, so he was kind of a perfect fit to write for this. So as far as like adapting it into an, an English script, there is not a lot that gets lost in the script writing, so I'm going to give high praise to Stephanie because this isn't like, uh, there's no cultural barriers, I don't think. Like, um, was there anything, Roots, that you saw, that you heard in here that you didn't quite understand because of any cultural barriers? Honestly, the themes of this movie were so universal. Mm-hmm. Um, I really didn't lose much in translation, if anything. And I agree with that. I mean, There's other no- than, like, other than, like, signs being written in French, um, honestly, I could have watched this film dubbed and never have known. And that's probably, yeah, that is the only giveaway is the French uh, writing in the background. Um, there's one uh, sign in particular is the candy shop, which um, is pretty prominent in the first part of the movie. Because, and I, this is the very little part of French I knew. It says, Le Roy Su Sucre on it. And I already knew the words king and sugar on there. So I knew that it already translated to the king of sugar. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking... Oh, it would have been so perfect if it actually translated into The King of Candy because then we could have had a reference to the other big film that came out in 20... animated film that came out in 2012, which was Wreck-It Ralph. Wait. Oh, 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 2012. Okay. Yeah. I, I forgot. Uh, it was nominated for an Academy Award in 2014. Yes, because they had to go through the whole process of it has to have a, a Los Angeles release and it has to fit all these criteria, so original release would not have been uh, given it qualification. Right. Which is a real shame. And of I course, really... by yeah. s- and of course by saying, you know, nominated in 2014, it of course lost the award to Frozen, because, you know, oh, you can't have nice things! Oh. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, it would take uh, another five years after that for that curse to finally be broken. Thank you, Spider-Verse. You have done more good than you'll ever know. That sequel's coming out in 2022. We have to wait two more years for that to come out. It'll be worth it. Yes, it will. I'm so looking forward to that. We're getting way off topic here. Um, The point is is that uh, Stephanie's writing for this um, absolutely translates the themes for this movie pretty well. Um, the, The part that was going to be tripping up was actually going to be the direction. Because French animation, French voice acting in general, tends to be on the more subdued side compared to... Uh, American voice acting in general. Um, Obviously, there's shades and variations of degrees, but in general, and especially for this movie, the French audio uh, was excitable, but was also supposed to sound like the people were normal people. The fact that they were bears and mice was less a plot point and more of like a design choice. So, Michael's direction in turning this into a more cartoonish-sounding uh, dub, which I think we can agree that a lot of the voice actors were told to go a little more over the top to match the animation, especially um, yeah. one particular character we'll, we'll talk about. That being said, um, it's definitely more localized. I feel like they were trying to go for something a little more localized, a little more accessible to a general audience, because, I mean, talking about watching this movie when it first came out, I was interested in it from a, a global animation perspective. And it didn't necessarily have to be something that catered to a younger audience, even though it was clearly written for one. I'm not a big fan of the kind of over-the-top direction that Michael gave to the overall cast. 
I've already warned you. You are not to have any sweets, not ever! Listen to me, mister! You are forbidden to have the slightest bit of sugar! Do you want your teeth to rot right out of your mouth? Do you want to end up across the street at your mother's shop? Huh? Is that what you want? It's fitting for the animation, and it definitely fits for the localization they were going for. I just feel like it undercuts some of the more sentimental parts of the film. It matches some of the more cartoonish parts, but that's only half of the movie. And if your voice acting only matches half of the movie, that's a bit of a problem. So, first and foremost, yeah, Stephanie Shea's scriptwriting is definitely one of the solid winners of this particular process. Um, I also have to give a lot of props to another scriptwriter, just kind of a minor thing on the side. His name is Todd Edwards, and he adapted the song Ernest Sings at the beginning of the film, <laughs> where he's begging for food. Yeah, there's a... Um, that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> because that ended up being one of the the part of the film that I just had the absolutely largest belly laugh to. Ernest loves mommies and children the best. The premium work to this much more than the rest. Whatever is so awful to share some of that waffle so warm and so sweet will be such a treat. Please don't walk away. You will make my day. Just one little bite. Your mom, it's all right. <laughs> We've talked to before on this podcast about the, the difficulty in adapting uh, songs from Japanese to English and now trying to do it from French to English. I feel like that's a bit of an easier task because there's a lot more overlap in uh, the way that English and French are spoken, but still hard to yeah. do and sound and sound good. Like that's the other thing that I kind of wanted to talk about. I one of these days I would love to pick Stephanie Shea's brain about the adaptation process of Ernest and Celestine, um, because I. The Japanese language, which is what we usually cover on the show, um, it's a very dense language. It covers a lot of information over very few syllables. That's true. Uh, and so adapting that into English ends up getting really complicated. Um, something like French, which flows at a generally similar pace as English, mm -hmm. um, I would imagine in some ways would be easier and in others a little trickier. And especially because um, in, just... in this in this film, there's a lot of speaking. Um, there's th This is one tenet of the film, and this is actually pretty true of a lot of French cinema, is that they, they don't show a lot of stuff uh, without dialogue. So you'll notice that a lot of the important plot points like why the the two bears and their don't let their son have candy or why are the mice children being expected to get teeth or a lot just a lot of the details are expressed not through visuals alone they're told through characters speaking at one another yeah and honestly look i was on the fate zero episode and mm -hmm. the fate stay night episode and the fate apocrypha episode uh the theme I happen to know a lot about info dumps. Um, as much as the characters were vocalizing what was going on in the world mm -hmm. of, of the film, 
it didn't actually feel like much of an info dump. It, it was just that a lot of the... The way in which they were describing things... It felt a little more natural. Like, oh yeah. When the dentist scolds Celestine about not collecting enough teeth by telling her why they had to collect teeth. Look at our entire civilization. Think of our achievements over the centuries. To what do we owe them all? Well, what? Speak up, my little one. Speak up. Our incisors. Our incisors, exactly. They are the foundation of our society. Uh, I remember back in the day, you know, when I when I was a young dentist apprentice, and all I wanted to do was, you know, keep people's teeth clean. My first goal was to go out and steal teeth for the dentist. I remember those days. Which, by the way, that was another fun part of this film, is that secretly there's a tooth-based economy, but we'll, we'll get into that <laughs> in another section. Actually, not just one, but two tooth-based economies. But, again, sections ahead. Yes. Um, in all honesty, um, I, I thought the script writing and the dialogue flowed really well. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of funny to say this considering the cast is so star-studded. Mm -hmm. Um, but I thought it was, I thought the casting was really well done. And I'm I'm not just saying that because the cast is star studded. It actually. <laughs> you, you, are you, you are know. you worried that the uh, the Lauren Bacall fanboys are going to come and find you in your sleep if you don't say something nice? <laughs> <laughs> They're out there. Th those those suckers are out there, and they they will cut you if you say anything mean. I have no intention. Um, no, the casting was really well done. Um, the the actors they got to fill in the roles. Um, actually felt very natural compared to what their character designs look like. Uh, and some really great examples of this will be coming throughout the episode. Mm. In terms of direction, I do have to disagree a little bit. I... You know, I, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, this is also a film that on both sides of the Atlantic was designed to appeal to children. And so I kind of understand the decision to sort of play up the cartooniness of the characters. I mean, there there is some differences in the sophistication between American and French children, and, and that's entirely archetypal. I mean, you, you could obviously argue that some American kids are... Uh, more reserved than French kids, and I'm sure there's some French kids who are out of control. Um, the, the thing that I feel like really uh, contributes to this, and uh, maybe we're going to talk on this, was that this film in the French was recorded before the animation was done, and so the animation was built to that original French dialogue, whereas the Americans, you know, they had to fill in the gaps for animation that's already done. So I feel like a little bit of the spontaneity of the original audio gets lost when you have to record over preset animation. I mean, that's fair. Um, in similar aspects, this was, if I recall correctly, um, similar in nature to um, how Akira was produced. 
where That's, all yeah. of the all the dialogue in Japanese was recorded prelay, mm -hmm. and then uh, the dub had to turn around and compensate for this both times. Right. I mean. Lip flaps aren't quite gonna match up, but that's also... It's not necessarily something I'm looking for. It's more... Does it feel in the spirit of what the animation is trying to do? And I think, in that respect, the direction was really well done. Oh, I, I'll agree with that. Um, it certainly captures the spirit. Um, I mean, there, there's um, there's archetypes and emotions that had to be conveyed through just you know voice acting and again voice acting on our side is not easy you have you do have to convey a lot through just your audio your voice and michael did direct all of these uh actors some of whom i don't think have very many voice credits to their name or even music credits uh definitely brought their a game to what they needed to do i guess what i'm getting at is that it's it's not as good as the french audio but it is perfectly good for uh for your average cartoon watcher. Like, I can easily see this running on Adult Swim late at night next to your Summer Wars and your Wolf Children films that they put on for Family Fun Night. I can easily see it sharing screen time with that kind of production. Hmm. Actually, I could see this show up on Cartoon Network proper, if we're being honest. I'm just trying to think, like, have they... Oh, uh, but that... <laughs> the... Okay, the last time they did French animation... Uh, let me think... That was probably back when they did, um, what, oh god, was it, um, god, what's it called, was it Code Lyoko? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they've done I, some. I can't think of anything later. I mean, I'm sure they've done something. honest. I believe, let's see, Gumball is, Imagine World of Gumball, that's, that's uh, British. That is British, you're right, that's, I mean, I'm sure there's some French, uh, in, like, uh, some of it is produced in France, but yeah, you're right, majority of it is British. So, yeah, as far as uh, actual French productions, it's been a while. And it's not that the French are short mm. for uh, for things to show off. I I just don't know if uh, it's the kind of stuff that, again, as we were talking about, the what the average American watcher would want is really being shown on their networks these days. Yeah. Um, of course, that's all neither here nor there, but... Yeah, especially because um, we're talking about a film that came out almost ten years ago now. Yeah. Um... In all, though, the uh, the dialogue is really, it's really punchy and cartoony. It's it's really, in terms of the direction, it is a really fun, energetic dub. Fun and energetic, definitely. Uh, so I, I would definitely give it a thumbs up. And with that, we will move to our first batch of characters. Alright. Um, actually, not getting much in the way of screen time but what they do end up doing over the course of the film is kind of important um there is a scene at the very end of the film in which um both celestine and Ernest have been caught by the police of the opposite species and so celestine was caught by the bears and Ernest was caught by the mice and they are in the respective courthouses with, with two judges. With, not for nothing, I'd like to point out. Like, I know the, the primary crime they're on, on trial for is apparently for being friends with each other, which is a big taboo. I mean, if that was the only thing they'd be on crime on trial for, then yeah, we totally sympathize. But 
what is it that they also committed? Let, let us not forget that. Let's go down the list here. Let's see. Oh, uh, they absolutely committed several acts of theft. R robbing a candy store, stealing marshmallows from small children, stealing a car, causing lots of collateral damage from crashing that car, evading arrest, bringing a bear into the mites' habitat, who they're all terrified of him, and stealing all of the teeth. Just all of the teeth. I feel like that's grounds for at least a little bit of community service. Like, and the funny part is, the the theft of the teeth, that's never actually addressed over the course of the film. I mean, it's not, like you're saying, there's a bit of a tooth-based economy, so the bears may not miss it so much. One of the characters even makes a comment, like, who would be so silly as to steal teeth? But the mice absolutely rely on that stuff. I'm honestly surprised they hadn't tried to uh, to rob a bear's denture place before. Yeah, uh, but we'll we'll be getting to that I think in the next segment of characters. I'm, I'm just saying I'm not going on in the defense for these characters. No. Uh, no, they absolutely committed crimes, and then when the anger of both judges ends up setting both courthouses on fire simultaneously. <laughs> um, they are rescued by Ernest and Celestine, respectively, and because of the mutual level of respect, um, they're both allowed to live together. I know, major movie spoilers, but this... The film has such a basic boilerplate plot that it it's really the character interactions that make it great. Um, but in any case, uh, the rat judge who tries Ernest is played by Paul Giamatti. Uh, you would know him from... <laughs> of all the people you could have gotten for this. I'm sorry, go, go um, list off the rules. He has since done additional voiceover work uh, with films like April and the Extraordinary World. Um, he was also, he also cameoed as the Rhino in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And because he refused to drink the Merlot, <laughs> um, he was also in Sideways. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant film. I love it to death. I... I just love that we're talking about Ernest and Celestine so I can bring up Sideways. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. Oh my god, it's a riot. I've heard, I've heard good things about it, but I've, I've not seen it before. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but I hear Paul Giamatti. I think one of two things. I either think his more serious part from, like, the John Adams miniseries, or I think of Big Fat Liar. I'm sorry, I, I, that's what just comes to <laughs> me. The original Blue Man Group. The man oh has my had a God, weird, I remember weird... Big Fat Liar now. It, it was inescapable back in 2002. Oh my God, the commercials were all over the place. Anyway, anyway, before we digress, um, the Grizzly Judge who tries Celestine is played by Jeffrey Wright. Um, he had a prominent role in the latter films of the Hundred. He had a prominent role in the later films of The Hunger Games. I think specifically the two Mocking... Mockingjay? Mockingjay. I, I think it's the Mockingjay films. Mm -hmm. 
I think that was the book they split into two parts. Um, he, too, has also since done additional voiceover work. Um, in this case, the Netflix series Green Eggs and Ham. Oh, wait, um, but that? probably the thing you're going to most recognize him for now is the HBO Westworld series. Which is also something I have not seen because I don't have HBO. And next year, if I recall correctly, due to all the, the film delays going on, due to, you know, everything, um, he will also be playing... Um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Commissioner Gordon in the new Batman film. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, you're not kidding. Oh, no. I've I've seen some of the set photos. He, like, it looks absolutely cool. Oh, I reckon. Oh, okay. I recognize this now. I, I Now that you mentioned the Batman, I remember, yeah, he was being talked about in the press uh, build-up for this as it was being cast. I really, really need to see... Um, uh, Westworld series. Sorry, I haven't gotten around to that because I don't own HBO. Well, neither do I, but Blu-rays are a thing. That they are. Uh, anyway, um, why don't you get us started? Um, like you were saying, this, these, uh, these two characters aren't really ones that have prominence in the, the first part of the movie, but they do, uh, they do kind of build towards the big climax at the end where we kind of have all the respective societies, the bear society and the mouse society sort of overcome their prejudices and resolve their, uh, you know, their hating of each other through these two characters. Um, both of them, uh, are exactly the kind of archetypes that you want in this. And especially compared to the French, which is uh, very interesting because the Rat Judge was voiced by an actor who I'm afraid I don't know, but he was in his 80s when he voiced it. So the the, the kind of higher pitched, um, curmudgeon-y sound that uh, Paul was trying to emulate in the English that wasn't an affectation in the French. That was absolutely genuine. So, hmm. like I was saying with Paul uh, Giamatti's entire career is just bizarre to me because he seems to have, like a lot of different modes and I respect that like he was the kind of guy who I respect for doing so well in so very many different uh, kind of roles like anyone who can play both John Adams and Santa Claus are re really needs to be commended I commend that man <laughs> and doing uh, the rat judge performance uh, it's really loud and it's really shrill and it it's Full of the energy that this animation needs. And we'll talk about the animation as we're going through this whole thing. But, you know, just showing you the still shot on your screen in front of you of how the art style looks. It is beautiful looking and is full of huge wild takes throughout the whole thing. And so it sounds like oh, Paul's... Yeah. yeah, Paul's just having a lot of fun emoting himself out of control. Because, he, you know, he says he sets the place on fire from being so enamored with... Uh, be, being uh, bringing Ernest to justice, essentially, the legal system in this in these worlds is apparently very very strict. Um, and then Jeffrey Wright is the complete opposite. He is also bombastic and over the top, but he's got a is the lowest. He's got the lowest grumble of all of the bears, and we'll talk about this because a lot of the bears who have English voices in this have very low voices or like even if their normal voices aren't low like this there's usually like a, a grumble in the back of the throat that's supposed to emulate a bear-like sound and Jeffrey Wright acts that really well but he also gets one of the more tender parts too because you'll remember that 
uh, he has like a, a bit of a, a coming to Jesus moment when he realizes that he, he's stuck in a burning building and refuses to leave because he's just that devoted to the justice system that he won't leave until the trial is over. But then Ernest, I'm sorry, Celestine kind of talks him out of it. And that kind of flips the switch of thinking, you know, maybe all mice aren't that bad after all. And Jeffrey plays that part really well. He plays the growly, loud parts and that sentimental bit near the end pretty well too. That is an order! That is enough! Take your seat! Where is everyone? Everybody left. And we should too. They abandoned me. But not you. Yeah, so I I think I as well will start with um, Paul Giamatti. Um, I absolutely love it when he plays characters with manic energy to him. Case in point, uh, my favorite performance of his, just in general, is Sideways. I gotta look this up. I'm sorry, I'm gonna see if it's streaming anywhere now that you mention it. I believe it is, but I don't remember where. Who knows? Might end up on Disney Plus because it's Fox. <laughs> that would be absolutely hilarious. Oh, God. Wait, no, hold on. I'm going to pull this up here. Let's see. 2004 romantic comedy. Watch the movie. Let's see. You can watch. There's... Actually, it's, it's streaming in a lot of places. Um, okay, it's on Hulu if you have a Hulu subscription. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm not paying the extra $3.99 on Amazon Prime. Anyway, um, I I love Paul Giamatti playing characters with manic energy. Um, the Rat Judge um, is absolutely hilarious um, when looked through the lens of, oh, he's so blinded by his sense of justice that, oh, everything around him is on fire, and he still wants to lock Ernest away forever. You will come to order or I will clear the room! I will clear the room! You stay back! I want you back in your box where you belong! Because that's apparently a crime you can do in Mouse World. It's it's not like uh, they got a whole lot of other oh, crimes no, to... No, no, he didn't want to lock him away. He wanted to do the, um, the giant mouse trap. Because they oh, had God. that joke with the teddy bear. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Imagine this, people. Imagine... Okay, you've seen regular mice traps. Imagine, like, a huge human-sized version of that, that, like, 20 mice are pulling back, and then they let it go, and then it, like, snaps, and then takes off the stuffed bear's head. They don't actually show the head being decapitated, but the sound effect is more than enough to get the message across. Yeah, that was absolutely hilarious scene, but none of the characters we're talking about are in that. Um... It's just great, and especially because now I'm going to go into Jeffrey Wright, but I'll have something else, something to say about both characters simultaneously at the end. Um, he, on the other hand, also kind of in that comedic sense is so blinded by justice, he doesn't see the entire courthouse is on fire. Um, but like Noah was getting at, there was a come to Jesus moment uh, for the both of them when they are saved by uh, Ernest and Celestine respectively mm -hmm. and they come to realize that the other members of their species had all fled long before and that it was the 
the member of the opposite species that they were trying to lock away that basically did the things necessary to get them out of the building and safe. Um, I thought in both cases that that happened, um, those scenes were really poignant. And I think the sense of comeuppance in both characters was performed really well. Mm-hmm. Um, also showed that the, that the both of them were capable of the compassion necessary to overcome their prejudices, which seems to be the overarching core theme of the movie. Oh yeah, it's brought up several times by several characters. But I think the, the scenes in which they are dealing with why they think, you know, bears are super scary and will eat you, or mice will scare mothers. Like that... <laughs> Okay, I should probably bring it up here because it's technically something that's gonna that involves later characters. But I love the juxtaposed scenes in the courthouses where um, Ernest is on the stand and he's asked, you know, and he asks, you know, do I really scare children? Use her, frighten our children. What? Children? Do I frighten you? Like I, I love that ju that those two scenes ju juxtaposed with one another. Um, really great. I think these two performances were re were really good. Um, don't really get a lot of them, but they do what they need to do. Good point. Good point. I, it just really surprised me that we got so we got essentially we got a list celebrities for essentially minor characters in the movie. Well, they are also, they may be minor characters, but they're also the minor characters that do things. That's true. That actually advance the plot. But they do. Um, speaking of, our next backstage characters are George and Lucienne. Uh, George and Lucienne are two married bears who have on the surface, completely contradictory jobs that if you really stop and think about it, um, they got a market cornered. I mean, there's, I think now the film see, wanted us to think they were the bad guys. And I guess maybe if you're anti-making money, you would be. But I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of admire the, the ingenuity that they have working together in the way they do. <laughs> okay. So you see, George owns the King of Sugar, the the sh the candy store mm -hmm. in the Bear City. Um, he of course sells candy to children. Now Lucienne has her business set up on the other side of the street. Oh, we we, we gotta mention this though. It's a it's dentist like... shop. Yes, and where is the candy shop set up? Right across the street. But what is the candy shop set up next to? Oh, God, I don't remember. A school! 
It is right next to the oh, elementary school. Oh, there we school. go. Okay. And, like, the camera goes back, and it shows, like, bell rings. Kids get out of school. And then, like, uh, two doors down. Candy shop. That is diabolical. That feels like it should be illegal. That's like putting a liquor store right it next to the AA center. <laughs> and there's even a scene, as Noah had alluded to, where... These two bears are explaining the scheme to their son. Where George will rot the kids' teeth out. Uh, and when they're adults and their teeth start falling out, they come to Lucienne for replacements. And we're not just talking like, about... It is... It's, it's, it's rather, a perfect crime. It is, and it's rather ingenious the way that... You would think that you just have to... Uh, uh, like, get your teeth fixed? No, this is like a world where you can buy whole teeth and they'll, like, you'll be screwed into your gums, which is not really something that we have in our society. Like, if you lose a tooth, you have to get either, like, a gold tooth fitted into that or get, like, a plaster of some kind. Uh, th this world is far more advanced than ours, although I'm not sure if bears actually, like, suffer from teeth falling out in the real world. Like, real bears, like, non-cartoon bears. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Sure. Um, and as Noah had also mentioned, um, George and Lucienne are kind of central characters in that Ernest breaks into George's shop to steal candy because he's hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, that gets him in trouble with the bear cops. <laughs> um, Celestine has a little bit of a plan where she rescues Ernest and gets his help breaking into Lucienne's shop to steal bear teeth so that they can be converted into mouse teeth. Because if mice don't have both of their incisors, um, they can't eat, they can't speak, mm -hmm. and they, and I quote, live the rest of their lives in miserable agony, according to the head dentist. Which is per is perfectly understandable. Um, there was actually additional footage that the 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 scriptwriter had intended to uh, put in the movie, which was uh, the children mice uh, filling lots of different roles, not just getting teeth. There was going to be like uh, mice that had to scavenge for food, some that had to scavenge for building materials. And a lot of that uh, they, they cut that from the main movie because they just wanted to focus on the main characters. But I would have like really enjoyed seeing the additional roles that the mice had to play one of which of course being how important it is to get these teeth because you know it really fleshes out the mice world in general that are living beneath these bears yeah um so in any case um george is played by nick offerman um he was in the tv series of fargo which i did not know um, existed he was he was Metal Beard in the Lego movie. <laughs> um, but the general public listening to this episode would probably best recognize him as Ron Swanson in Parks and Recreation. Mainly oh. from the gif of him taking his computer and throwing it in the dumpster. Um, amongst many, many things. <laughs> I, I really haven't seen that much uh, of Parks and Recs, but I, yeah, you're right. His his meme status has completely perpetuated the internet culture. There we go. Um, so Lucienne is played by Megan Mullally. 
Uh, Megan Mullally was in Will and Grace. Uh, she had multiple appearances in Bob's Burgers. And she also appeared in The Disaster Artist. Now, a fun little FYI about Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. Uh, George and Luciana are a married couple. Mm-hmm. Guess who's also a married couple? You're, you're kidding. N- don't tell me Nick and Megan are married. <laughs> Holy cow, they are. And another little thing... Um, both Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally also had prominent roles in the Adult Swim series, Children's Hospital. I, I have to wonder if the fact that Nick and Megan were married was like the, the prime, was like just an extra little bit of bonus footage or if like they knew each other and like got the other one in. But whatever the point being, it, it is honestly that makes it a little more charming. It's kind of like when you watch the dub for uh, My Neighbor Totoro. And you you watch it in the knowledge that the two main characters are real are voiced by real life sisters. Like that's actually very sweet. Now, as far as the actual acting goes, um, these two characters, like I said, I feel like the, correct me if I'm wrong, Roots, but I feel like the movie wants us to think of them as the bad guys, even though all they're really doing is running a business that is not that diabolical. I. I get the feeling that just because they are the ones that initially call the cops on Ernest, um, I feel like there is, like, an initial... You're wanted to kind of think that... Maybe not the bad guys, but they're... Mm -hmm. Not particularly... Kind people, I guess, would be the word I was looking for. I mean, we see a couple other bear characters in this world who do not give Ernest anything to eat when he's panhandling, um, you know, playing for music and just literally asking for a little bit of bread. So, yeah, these two characters are really our main insight into the bear society in general. And uh, okay, as far as the acting, I'm trying to focus on the acting. Um, it's good. Um, both of them get are the most over-the-top portions of the acting, I think, in general. Um Uh, Nick Offerman in particular, he just adds an extra layer of goofiness on top of a character that is supposed to be more of like a a serious business person because he's very much a two-faced individual. He's always thinking about uh, continuing the family business and having good presentation while simultaneously asking children what kind of candy would they want. Like, what can I get for you, little girl? Cotton candy? Maybe some jelly beans! And it's very over the top and very... It's not even like... Like, you know, Sam from... Uh, the the candy guy from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Like, that was a guy who, you know, I could see sitting down and enjoying a milkshake with. This is the kind of guy who I'd sit around and talk about stocks with while enjoying some marshmallows. But as far as Nick's actual mm. acting in it... Um, so, it sounds like he's intentionally cutting out syllables. Is the best way I'd describe it. And that's something that is very difficult to pull off. Like, his goofy, over-the-top performance is trying to match the animation. It doesn't sound like this is Nick just being Nick. Although, based on some things from uh, Ron's portrayal in Parks and Rec, maybe it could be. But it really does feel like he's, like, ramping up the energy to match the animation. And most of the time, it's enjoyable because the character itself is just, you know, is just animated that way. Um, and occasionally it slips into slightly over the top, like, be- a little beyond the level. Like, we got a level. We got a thermometer, and there's a level where you don't want to go above, and sometimes he's going above it because it just does not sound like his normal voice. But it's not 
unpleasant to watch. And because it matches the animation, I'm going to offer it a little bit of forgiveness, but this is kind of like the main voice I point to when I was talking earlier about how I think the localization efforts was much more akin to what Americans were looking for than uh, matching the, f the original creator's intention. I unfortunately have a little less to say about Megan because um, she does have as much prominence in the film, um, but she doesn't get quite as many um, over-the-top moments. But she does get to uh, absolutely nails, like, I, I mean, dead-to-right nails the scared screaming moments. That, that screech bit where they first encounter Celestine, just, you know, ah, it's a mouse! I, I'm not going to try to go to the top there. But... Her absolute shrill scream of terrifiedness, I absolutely bought that. Like, it does sound like someone who is absolutely surprised by a rat in their house that they want dead. So they're, they're both... They're absolutely what this, uh, this dub needed. This is, like, absolutely not miscast or misacted. Um, as long as you like that over-the-topness, then that's exactly what you're going to get. I will say that I actually really did enjoy Nick Offerman's performance as George. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the Ron Swanson side of his usual performances. Um, mm. I actually think it's a little more akin to Middle Beer. You know, having seen that not too long ago, I can see where you're coming from on that. Um, minus, minus the, um... Wiping your bum with a hook for a hand is hard. Breaking in would be impossible. Whatever that yeah. voice is. I mean, yeah, absolutely, with about 100% less of the Pirish accent. <laughs> Idea for a redub. This movie with pirate accents. <laughs> Stroking my beard here, wondering. Hmm. Anyways. Um... But I do love the fact that the performance in particular is almost three-faced. How so? Because um, you have his... You have his persona as the candy store owner. You know, jovial, happy, kids, get your candy! Mm -hmm. Do you perhaps want jelly beans? Guy freaking set up right next Can to a school, and no one in the boarding zone thought that that was a bad idea. I think we need to have a talk with the planning board. De definitely. I can't bear this. <laughs> um, so his other face is um, how he talks to his son. Mm -hmm. Which he is constantly taking him aside and scolding him for wanting candy. Just yeah. because he has to have that perfect smile so that he can sell candy to kids. So it'll rot their teeth so that they have to go next door and get their teeth replaced. Because one day... One day his son is going to own both businesses. And he's going to be rich. Daddy rots people's teeth on one side of the street. And mommy replaces them on the other side. And one day both businesses will be yours. Which means you are going to be doubly rich. And as your grandfather used to say, to have a beautiful smile, you must have healthy teeth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, you've cornered the market on two 
sim not simultaneous, um, symbiotic parts of the business, yeah, you're going to make a lot of income. What do we say about alcohol? We're going to say the same about candy. The cause and solution to all our problems. <laughs> um, I actually do kind of like his comedic over-the-top performance. Um, especially when he's dealing with Ernest. Um, both breaking out of his store while stealing all the candy, and then later stealing his truck. <laughs> like, it's just... It's just karmically bad dealings with with Ernest are just hilarious, and I love... I love how he's just doing all these over-the-top reactions to it. <laughs> what are you doing in here? A thief! Get out! Run, get out! Um, Megan Mullally, as Noah was mentioning, um, she doesn't actually get to do a lot to advance the plot. Um, she's mainly there to shriek at the mouse that showed up in the house, or shriek that the family van, the delivery truck, is being stolen. And then again in the courthouse when she shrieks again at the mouse. Mm-hmm. Like, that is basically the character arc of Lucienne, and also joining in and scolding the, her son about wanting candy. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, near, right at the beginning of the third act of the movie, when the van uh, crashes into their house, or into the candy store, that was George uh, who had the initial reaction, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that, that was also uh, beautifully, uh, cartoonishly over the top. Hmm. There's something about um, when, uh, when like, there are screams that you hear from someone, but it's slightly muffled because they're, like, in another room or far away. That makes it even funnier. Like, you can't see their face, but their audio just makes it even more hilarious. Oh, my van! Oh, my store! Yeah, and, like, when you can't exactly see what's going on and they're just reacting to things off screen, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, but overall, I really like both performances. Um, even though they really... Like a lot of the characters we're going to talk about, they get a significant chunk of dialogue, but really are only there to advance certain elements of the plot. Oh, one thing I will say about um, Lucienne, um, as far as... I'm sorry, as far as advancing stuff, is that she gives us... Nothing plot-related that I want to talk about, but she gives us an amazing example of the art in this movie. Okay, so you know that the the overall look of the film is supposed to be like moving watercolors, right? Yeah. Now, in the production of the whole film, they did draw the backgrounds on paper with actual you know charcoal and watercolor, and then the actual animation was all done with computers. Um, a very detailed, almost three-part animation style, but the the end result is that you can almost not distinguish the background from the animation characters or any of the props that have to move. So in one scene where we see Lucienne's dental shop, she's reaching over to a display of teeth for one of her customers. And usually in an animated film, you can tell which of the props is going to move because it's animated or it's painted a little differently than the rest of the background. In this scene, you could not tell which one she was going to reach for because they all looked the same 
and then when she picked it up to move it, it was indistinguishable from the background. It's like a tiny little thing, but I really want to commend the art department, the background team, the animators, all of them for making this film look as consistently good as it does. Hmm. Yeah, definitely kudos to Leo Matours and the composite studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll we'll get I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about like the uh the, the art as we go along, but I just want to say that one part is just Chef's kiss. Hmm. Yeah. Uh so our next batch of characters, um we have the head dentist whom Celestine works for. Um he sends her and a bunch of other orphans out to steal teeth, which he will later file down into the correct size to fit in the mouth of a mouse, which will allow mice who have lost an incisor to be able to speak and eat again. Um, generally altruistic, but yeah. Um, they're still breaking into bear houses to steal teeth from children. Which they don't even leave a coin like their parents <laughs> promise they will. I mean, we should specify that they're not, like, hacking their mouths open and yanking them out of their mouths. We're talking about right, right. Get, getting teeth that have already fallen out. I feel like we should preface yeah, it's that. Bas- the bear parents basically tell their kids about the tooth fairy, which is, in the story, a mouse. Not the first, um, uh, not the first cartoon I've heard of before that actually had mice as a uh, tooth fairy. There's actually, um, I'm gonna try to find what the background on it, but uh, it was a Crayola co-production. Uh, There's a couple of short cartoons that were called "The Tales of the Teeth Mice." I don't remember where I saw that before, but essentially it was the same premise of teeth were being taken by the mice from humans. They were leaving money for it, of course, but they basically their entire mouse kingdom was made up. Like the architecture and everything was made entirely of teeth. Right. Now this is where we get into the sort of weird aspect of the movie that they never really get. I get that they didn't really have the time to go into it, but it's really. Celestine steals all of these teeth from Lucienne. And she gets caught by the bear cops. And is basically arrested, not for the theft of the teeth, but for her association with Ernest. Yeah, if it wasn't for that, she'd be Scott, she would be queen for life. Like... The, the fact that the, she stole all these teeth from a, a denture shop, it it's never addressed in the course of the film. Well, it doesn't have time to, because as soon as that happens, they, she gets chased out of their town by everyone like, You brought a bear into our society? True. Like, it's just one of those weird things that... that really never actually had any consequences. But anyway. Um, the head dentist sent her off um, and then later scolds her when she only brings back one tooth. When it, it, <clears throat> when otherwise the other orphans were bringing back like one had seven and another had twelve. I, hate, I hated that girl. The one who 
I seven. I brought back twelve. That's actually a low night for me. I usually bring much more back. Yeah, and his role is basically to explain the toothpaste economy to the audience. <laughs> and the gray one is sort of the matron of a mouse orphanage. Um, she takes care of a bunch of mouse orphans and sends them out on various jobs to do throughout the little mouse town. Which, as Noah described, there were going to be scenes in which the mouse orphans are doing various tasks, but the only one we see in particular is them going up to the bear world and stealing teeth. Um, she has a really, I think it's the defining scene of the movie in the very beginning when she's telling the story of the big bad bear, because the way the, the mice justified their prejudice of the bears is that, uh, the bears are actually dangerous. Obviously they are much bigger than mice and if they were hungry enough, they'd probably eat one as demonstrated later in the film. Um, but the way that the Grey One tells the story and the visuals that accompany it, um, the Grey One uses her shadow as sort of a prop in this story. Where it takes the shape of, of the wolf basically cooking and eating mice. And I thought that was, like, visually striking. It was really well done. Yeah, there, there's little visual flourishes all over this movie, and that, that was definitely an indicator right at the beginning that we were in for a very pretty movie. Hmm. Um, but in any case, <laughs> before Noah and I go gushing about the animation for another half an hour... It's so pretty, and it took, like, three different kinds of layers on it, and there was, like, there's three directors on it, and cut me off roots, and three directors on it, because one couldn't do the work all by themselves, and then they spent, like, years developing this, and then, oh my god, it's all from the right, guy... Alright, alright, alright. Um, the head dentist is played by William H. Macy. Um, fun fact, while Nick Offerman was in the television incarnation of Fargo... William H. Macy was actually in the original movie. Uh, he was also in Boogie Nights. And you can see him right now in Shameless, which I believe is Showtime. Uh, and I think it's also on Netflix. It's it's absolutely ball-to-the-wall hilarious. But definitely not for the younger crowd that this film is trying to attract. Good to know. I'll watch it after the kids go to bed. And the gray one is played by... Oh my gosh. The one, the only, the legendary, and sadly late, Lauren Bacall. Holy cow. Um, Lauren Bacall was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her... Lauren Bacall was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in the film... The Mirror Has Two Faces. Um, she got to act against Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep. 
I mean, she and she actually this. has some anime dubbing in her resume, in the form of Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, glad you guys point that out. Um, the uh, director, one of the, one of the directors of this movie, uh, fully admitted that uh, Studio Ghibli was an influence on their creative process. Not surprising to anyone. So it's it's very fitting that we also have an actress from a Ghibli film in the cast. Yeah. All right, so Noah, why don't you begin? Well, first off, um, I haven't seen Fargo yet, and I I thought that I hadn't seen anything that William H. Macy had been in before, but as I was going through his cast list, I had to stop and kind of shake my head when the only one that I really recognized was Down Periscope. <laughs> Have you I seen that, mo that movie? You Okay, so you know what it's like. And it, it wasn't a movie like I saw recently. No, it was like... My dad wa was watching it probably, like, soon after it was available for, like, uh, cable networks or something. And I... Noah, oh. I am a Navy brat. Of course I've seen oh. Down Periscope. Oh, okay. So, okay, so uh, when I say things like the weenie tattoo, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that is the legacy that William H. Macy has in my brain. And this is nothing <laughs> like that. <laughs> Nothing like that movie at all. I just wanted to bring that up. Um, I, I think he's done some other things I've, I've, I've seen recently, but yeah, that's the one that sticks out in my brain. And honestly, he's, I believe, the best actor in... He's the best performance in the whole movie. Um, it's got... It, it's this very suave, speaking from the back of the throat kind of uh, performance uh, because he's supposed to be in charge. Like, we see him almost take over for one of the dentists saying like, no, 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 this is how you do it. And he very elegantly demonstrates like how you insert the teeth, how you file them to the right size so that the mice can speak again. He's in, he's distraught that a cell scene doesn't, like you said, ha get more than just one tooth in a single night. And throughout the whole thing, uh, he's just really slightly sinister sounding, but in the kind of way that makes you think that he, he's very smart and I very much enjoyed whenever I got to hear him speak. And I really feel like I need to hear more of, of uh, William H. Macy's performances because that guy has some pipes on him. It's, it's a bit of a shame that he doesn't show up for more than just the two scenes that he's in. But he's absolutely leaves an impression. Like, if the whole dub had been performed with his kind of gravitas and professionalism less than the more cartoonish uh, performances that the actors were told to give, I feel like I would like this dub a whole lot more. Uh, that's bias, and that's mean. I feel like that's mean, but that's just the impression I got from his entire performance. Um, now, I will not be mean to Lauren Bacall, because, uh, yeah, she is also quite amazing in everything that I've seen and heard her in, and this movie is no exception. Um, and it's very nice that um, there are some voice actors who are young... And have to play older sounding characters. Like we hear that a lot in uh, Funimation or Sentai dubs. Where there's old characters. They don't always get older women characters. Sometimes they have to have their younger performers sound older. But Lauren had the benefit of being um, an older woman when this was recorded. So all of that low sound that she has with like the mumbled speech pattern is not her putting on an affectation. You really feel like you're listening to someone who has weathered time and been through a whole lot in their life and, you know, has lived their better years behind them, and you just kind of want to listen to them tell the story of the Big Bad Bear. Like, yeah, get me some chamomile tea, 
get me a nightlight and I will listen to Lauren Bacall's read me a scary bedtime story till I go to sleep. Hmm. Um, yeah, so William H. Macy is a head dentist I also happen to really enjoy. Um, just because he is cool, calm, and collected up until the point he's disappointed with Celestine. And then later when Celestine comes back with a massive bag of teeth. The mother load! When, he, when he's just so excitable and it was just... Eh. Like that, that glee was... I, I loved it so much. <laughs> it was good. It was very good. Celestine, I thought I told you not to come back here until I... Look Self-esteem, I Look, look at this. Give, give me something. Look, I can't. This is incredible. It's fabulous. How did you? How did you do? I can't believe this. How did you? How did you do this? Oh, oh my goodness! Bravo, Celestine. I am so proud of you. Hooray for Celestine! <laughs> Hooray for Celestine! But also, um, one scene that you kind of alluded to that I happen to really like is um, when he's fixing the mistake of the other dentist mm-hmm. with the um, with the tooth. Yep. Um, and he's, you know, filing away at it and giving giving the mouse this little poem to say in order to, you know, know if the, big the bad adjustments bad. are working to the tooth. Yeah. Beware of the big bad bear, for he will give you such a scare. But it's this... It is a single line that I think nailed the performance. And it is when the head dentist is done, you know, grinding down this tooth to just the right size. And this mouse is able to speak again. He turns to the dentist who was originally working on him and just says, it's all in the wrist. The wrist. And hands him back the file. It's all in the wrist. In the wrist. I'm just like, okay, yeah, that nailed it right there. Um, And I, I could never, never say a mean thing about Lauren Bacall. Mm Mm-hmm. She was, is, and forever will be a living legend. Um, I I absolutely loved her performance in Howl's Moving Castle as the Witch of the Waste. Um, and for what scenes we get of the Grey One, um, she is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is both intimidating to all of these little mice children but you also get the sense that she legitimately cares about them and this is all portrayed in maybe five or so minutes of dialogue as she's talking to the talking to the children and telling the story mm-hmm. um, but I think the one thing that set that made this performance truly great is right at the end of the story 
Um, after she discovers a drawing of Celestine of a bear and a mouse getting along. And she scolds Celestine for such a preposterous thing that could only happen in fairy tales. Uh, one of her teeth pops out and lands in her chamomile cup. Children, for it's the truth. Mice can only be friends with bears in fairy And that was just great because for a lot of this, you don't see the gray one on screen. Like, this is Lauren Pacall bringing this performance out on her own without, you know, without a screen or a, a screen presence to let her know what's going on. And she and that carries so much throughout uh, Celestine's motivation in the first half of the movie, because, like, you would wonder, why would a little kid go through this much trouble just to get something to get teeth essentially but because we heard lauren really conveying the uh the, the kind of horrible living conditions or the um you know the hard knock life that these kids lead you buy that she feels like she has no other option yeah uh and that's nothing to say of her recounting the story of the big bad bear because mm-hmm. it is just this she she tells it like your grandmother would tell it to you if she had a book entitled The Big Bad Bear in front of you her and she was sitting down to read you a story to go to bed. I don't know why your grandmother would tell you such a frightening tale of a bear eating children, but... Look, I don't you know. know about... Uh, m- maybe your grandma's a uh, l- little more reserved than mine was, but mine was much more of the... If I'm going to tell a story, it's going to have a lot of tangents, a lot of um, interjected thoughts, and it's going to go on for at least twice as long as it really needs to. And I say that with full love and respect. I love you, Grandma Katie. But that's that's what I think of when I hear how your grandma would say it. I'm like, hmm, my, my grandma would still be reading that story. Ah, fair. She has this low growl to her when she's telling the story. Mm-hmm. And it, it fits with the visuals, with the shadows so well. Absolutely anything. But of all these, what does the big bad bear love to eat the most? One little mouse. Try ten. One hundred. One thousand. One million. Baked, roasted, and skewered. Sauteed. Deep fried. Even raw. Um, but I do have... I don't know if I'm going to be spoiling things a little too much, but... Um, that was not even my favorite performance of the film. You're kidding. So, with that, I think we should get to our final batch of characters for the episode. And I bet um, none the of titular, you can... Ernest and Celestine. I was going to say, I bet none of you can guess the names of the final characters we're going to talk about. None of you can guess. <laughs> um, so, Ernest is a street urchin and a performer. Uh, he goes out into the town square every day and begs for food. He's also a bear. He also happens to be a bear. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Which I... I 
feel like that might help things a bit, but kinda doesn't. Um, and Celestine is a mouse orphan. She is sent up to the bear world to seal teeth. Um, she kind of accidentally gets stuck in a trash can. And happens to be rescued by Ernest. Who's actually not looking to rescue her at all. He's, he's just looking for a meal. Tries to eat her. <gasps> <laughs> But I'm hungry. What's your name? Ernest. I'm Celestine. But she quickly convinces him to instead break into the candy store, thus setting off the chain of events that are the course of the film. I'll take you to the candy shop. I'll let you lick the lollipop. Sugar. So wrong. Sorry. You were saying. <laughs> uh, so, in any case, um, Ernest is played by Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Forrest Whitaker has won an Academy Award for his performance in The Last King of Scotland. Um, he has played... Oh, I can't even remember the character's name, and I love the franchise. Um, oh, Sagarera in... Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Mm-hmm. Um, a role which he later reprises in the cartoon series Star Wars Rebels. Yep. And he also gets to play the character, I think kind of briefly, I actually haven't gotten to his part yet, in uh, in the video game Jedi Fallen Order. That uh, wouldn't surprise me. And he was also in the, uh, the cult classic film uh, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Oh, uh, yeah. Power Which quality. I had seen as a teenager and was very disappointed that the film did not involve Ghost Dogs <laughs> or Samurai. <laughs> it kind of involves a samurai. Yeah. In, in name only, if not in practice. No, no, I'm sorry, in practice, if not in name. <laughs> I'm sorry, I need to watch more know, Jim that's... Jarmusch movies. Absolutely. I just always like to make that joke whenever I talk about my first experience <laughs> with watching Ghost Dog The Way of the Samurai. I mean, I suppose that I would be also disappointed if I watched a show called Birds of Prey and it involved neither birds nor prey. Of course, uh, that also does not go without saying the... There was once a... Um... um I guess in in a country in Africa, um, they couldn't get they couldn't get the royalties to pay for the actual posters for movies. So one theater had a guy <laughs> recreate them, and when he did Ghost Dog: The Way of the Samurai, he actually drew a samurai dog, and it was it was awesome. Yeah, and let me put that up on the screen here if you haven't seen that before, because there there's like an entire a collection of these, isn't there? Of of uh, movie posters being recreated for African audiences, right? And like a lot of them, just kind of here. Let me kind of get the the boilerplate of the plot of the film that they're trying to cover, but not much more than that. And like they're all great. Mm -hmm. Like this, like you have to. <laughs> Bless this guy's effort. 
I mean, like, I'm he tried. He legitimately tried. I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and yeah, there's there's Forrest Whitaker fighting against a dog holding a samurai sword, and the top half, above that, there is a dog, there's a beagle with ghost eyes, and then even above that, there are two Rottweilers yielding Tommy guns coming at you. Oh, that's great. Um, in any case, um, Celestine is played by Mackenzie Foy. Um, you would know her from such things as The Conjuring. Uh, a little bit of horror for you there. Um, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, might be a little more horror depending on what your stance is on the Twilight franchise. Hey, those movies are cinematic masterpieces. You're just not looking at it with your third eye. Uh, and she was also in the uh, Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. She was. I'd like to point out uh, one more role that she's done before, um, which was not long after this film came out. Um, there was actually a feature film adaptation of The Little Prince that was um, uh, available on Netflix. I think it's still up there from the director of The Lion oh, yeah. King. And she played the main girl in that movie. And the reason I bring this up is because we on Dub Talk were actually planning on doing an episode on that back when we thought that it was actually a French production and therefore the English audio would have been a dub of it. Uh, turns out, no, it was it was actually, I mean, it's based on a French story, but from what I can understand, the original audio was in America. So uh, doing a Dub Talk episode on that didn't quite seem right. And then we did The Dark Crystal. And... Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts in Castlevania. So, who knows? We might come back around to it. That's a good point. Speaking of Kipo, hell yeah, we got confirmation just yesterday that season two is coming out in June. Woo! Woo. I flipped my uh, lid. Anyway, um, Noah, why don't you start us off on our main characters? Uh, where, where do we even start on this? Because the, the entire movie is kind of riding on these two characters. Um... Uh, I guess, uh, as far as a visual style, um, the original books were, uh, had a bit of a different style. Like, the uh, Ernest and Celestine in the books looked a lot more like a bear and a mouse. Um, so I like how they adapted their eyes and their mannerisms for the screen so that it looks like, um, it looks a little different from the visuals from the book, but I perfectly like it just the way it is. And a lot of that can be chalked up to the main director, um, Benjamin Renner, who, um, the name may not sound familiar for you, for you, but, uh, you may have seen some of his artwork around. He does a lot of watercolor based, almost stick figure like animal characters. And in fact, he directed another film not long after this. Um, let me pull that up really quickly. Cause I, I'm going to get the name wrong. I know if I don't have it right in front of me, but it was called the big bad Fox and other tales. I will put a poster of that up oh, on the screen. Oh, that for was you. him. That was him. Yep. Um, it was actually his comic too. He um, that that style, that style that that movie was, is his art style. In fact, if you look at any comics he's done or blog posts that he's put up or notes that he did while making this movie, that's entirely his style, and it fits really well with turning Gabrielle Vincent's watercolor art style into something that can be turned into animation. Okay, that's really cool, because I think G-Kids also picked up the, you know, the Big Bad Fox and other tales. That they did, and I highly recommend checking it out. It's, um, yeah, I'm not going to say anything more about it, but you obviously know that it's something worth checking out. 
that let's bring it back to this film um because right uh the um okay so let's say this about the french audio really quickly um the original voice actor for Ernest on camp was talking about his role and he said that he wanted to avoid the big bear stereotype like uh with Baloo from the Jungle Book that you hear in a lot of voice acting that involves bears because he wanted Ernest to sound more like you and me uh, like we were saying before the fact that these characters are bears and mice does dictate some of the plots of the story, obviously. It gives it more something to look at. But really, they could be normal people. This could be a parable about nor- about regular people in living in poverty and becoming friends with each other. So Forrest Whitaker had the option, I guess, to either keep with that tone of sounding like a regular person without an affectation, or to try to play up the the growly bear-like voice that we would kind of expect and he opted to do the latter he gave Ernest a bit more of a a grumbly uh like rumble in the back of the throat uh kind of voice to him and that fits perfectly well with the animation I think that his acting is uh believably sympathetic because even though Ernest does a lot of not great things like seriously give back the marshmallows his entire uh, shtick is that he's just a starving artist. He wants to make music. He doesn't want to go into the legal business like his uh, father and his grandfather before him. And that's something that we can all relate to. Um, so yeah, I don't have any qualms really with Forrest's performance on this. And he gets... L- luckily he does get at his best when he's uh, kind of lamenting his upbringing. There's a scene back at his house near the middle of the movie where he's just kind of lamenting about how he wanted to make music and no one would let him. And that's where Forrest really gets to shine the most. Second only to the scene where he is absolutely losing his nuts in the candy shop. That scene where he is downing all of the candy and absolutely going to town on it just sounded like Forrest was having a lot of fun in the booth. Like, I can imagine that they're like, okay, uh, we're going to actually toss you into a candy shop right now have as much as you want, and they just recorded that audio. I think that's actually how they got that audio. <laughs> I'm coming, coming, I'm coming. <laughs> now, with uh, talking about Celestine, the original uh, French audio, I believe, if I remember correctly, the performer, the original French performer was actually uh, a little bit older than child actress when they made the movie. I think she was, like, in her late teens. So, um, and that doesn't really uh, have much of a problem because I, I'm very used to child characters not being voiced by children. I think we brought this up in things like Barakamon or other dubs where they just don't do that. For this, though, they did get a child. They got uh, Mackenzie Foy, who I believe was 12. Probably, no, I'm sorry. She would have been younger than that. Um, no, she would have been around 12 when the movie came out. So she was probably around 12 or 13 when they recorded the audio. And that, that plays up quite a bit to um, the believability of this is a young character, which she is, obviously. The thing that I want to point out is that um, I have no qualms with the acting at all, but it's a very noticeable West Coast accent. Now, that may not sound like much, but uh, there, there are some vocal affectations that stand out quite a bit. And in a movie that is supposed to be about um, kind of, I don't want to say normal people, like maybe help me out here, Roots, but I want to say like um, more uh, 
Midwest sounding, I guess almost like like more like a, the Heartland kind of sound to it. With a character that has a very distinguished West Coast sound to it, it's it's just a little different than what I would expect from the character to sound like. Fine, have a cellar, hmm? Yeah, but why do you? Okay, I'll go down there, and you stay up here. But no buts. Good night, and you better stay upstairs. Luckily, though, her acting is top tier. Um, if you had to go to L.A. to get the best child actors there are, I have no qualms with that because Mackenzie's performance is really good in this. She covers both the soft and gentle side of Celestine and the affirmative young rebel side of her, too, when she, like, um, tells Ernest, you know, there's only one way to kill a mouse, right? You could try poison, but I'm too smart for that. The one thing to do is you've got to trap them in a paper bag and they start breathing really heavily and all of a sudden her heart explodes! Those little parts there really played up uh, the multifaceted nature of a young character like Celestine. And honestly, aside from the thing that just bugs me a little bit with, about the West Coast accent thing, and maybe that's just me, maybe no one else has that issue, um, I had no qualms with the way that she was acting in this. It was exactly the level of professional and childlike that we needed. Um, so I am going to disagree with you a bit on Ernest. Okay. While I definitely understand that the way Forrest Whitaker played him is definitely different from the French version, mm -hmm. um, I actually think the two performances stand pretty well against one another. I... I had turned around and watched this film. Uh, I watched it in English first, and then I immediately turned around and watched it in the original French. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, this is the performance of the movie that I think um, I liked the most equally, I'd say. Between the two? Oh, okay. Equally to the original French? Yeah. Okay. Um, mainly because I actually understood that um, the English was definitely playing this differently from the original French version. Um, in the original French, I felt uh, the character of Ernest was being played as more of an oaf sort of in the sense of a um, like an early Simpsons Homer <laughs> and just as where he's not where he's not necessarily stupid um, he's just a bit of a grump and um, when things happen because of his mistakes um, you can tell that he at least tried to think things through. Um, the English Ernest, on the other hand, uh, I feel was played more of a... Um, to continue playing off of the English cartoon kind of comparisons, um, Forrest Whitaker's Ernest... Um, I feel was played more as an early SpongeBob Squidward. Oh, hmm. um, where you sort of replace some of the oafish aspects with a bit more of a grump. Ah, uh, I mean, he does like to play music as much 
Um, oh, yeah. I mean, later on in the course of the film, when you actually see Ernest develop as a character, that continues to play as I'm more in this sense referring to the early film up until the point he meets Celestine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see the Squidward comparisons in there that, yeah, that very simple-minded and not, uh, not, not jiving with the rest of the world kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And you, again, you said that, uh, that, that performance is, uh, you think as, just as good, or you enjoyed it just as much as the French. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything, I, I can't disagree with that, um, now, as far as, like, the, the actual acting of it goes, like, is there anything that feels, like, unbelievable between the English or the French? Um, not particularly, though, um, I will say my favorite set of dialogue from Forrest Whitaker's performance is actually at the very end of the film, and it's also where some of my favorite lines of Celestine's come from. Where it's basically them figuring out how to tell the story to the world. Mm. Um, where I guess, which is, I guess, where things deviate from the course of the books. Where, I I guess, um, the film references the way Ernest and Celsey meet in the books at the very end of the film. You found me in a garbage can and then you tried to eat me. <laughs> it was a joke. Oh, it wasn't funny. We could just change it around a little. Imagine this. You were just a tiny thing left lying in a trash can. An abandoned baby, your eyes weren't even open yet. I was a street sweeper, sweeping up the leaves from the sidewalk, you know? And that's when I heard it. The faintest little noise. Was it me? Yes. Um, and I guess this is basically supposed to be the quote-unquote true story of how they met. Because like I said, the the, uh, the script writer for this movie didn't want to just take original stories and glue them together. Didn't want to take the original books and glue them together. He made an original story for these characters. Right. That is a, a sweet way to, to pay homage to the original author. Um, at the point that the movie came out in 2012, the original author had actually... She died back in 2000, the year 2000. So, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, she had zero input on the creation of this. This isn't like a a Howl's Moving Castle situation where the original author got to see the work itself. So, yeah, that um, that the way that ended off, I, I agree with the voice acting. I do like the the way that both Forrest and Mackenzie um, play off the finale of it. That's a very sweet way to end the movie. Now, Ce- Celestine and Mackenzie Foy, um, I actually do very much prefer Mackenzie Foy's performance. Interesting. Um, I thought that the French... I honestly thought the French version sounded a little too old for the character. Understandable. Um, and also, Mackenzie Foy was just able to play off of Forrest Whitaker so well. I, I think the interactions between the two were a bit better performed in English than in French. I mean, there's a uh, there's a bit of an archetype in the French where they, they were definitely going for a more subdued, more um, two people uh, kind of meeting in a non-theatrical setting that they nailed in the French. 
that they really just weren't going for in English. Like, they wanted this to be, um, I don't want to say over the top, because that sounds negative. Um, I guess I'd call it more theatrical, in a way. Like, the kind of way that you would expect people yeah. to perform on a stage. I'm not talking movie, I'm talking, like, an actual theatrical play performance. Yeah. So, and yeah, I think that does that does lend itself better to our to our localized sensibilities. That's just something that grabs us a little bit more. It's not like the way that the French were going for. So I, I can I can definitely see where you're coming from. Now, particular standalone scenes for the both of them. Um, for Ernest in particular, I really love. As I mentioned before, I really love the song. <laughs> Ernest, that he does. Ernest, yeah, at the my beginning. name is Ernest. I don't have my accordion here. I sing on the street, you know. <laughs> now, won't you give me some meat or something like that? I, I wish I'd written the lyrics down, but yes. If if you're not, those of you who are listening, if you're not gonna hunt down the movie, at the very least, hunt down that song. Like it is absolutely hilarious, both in the French and Japanese. Or the French and English. <laughs> the I'm so used to talking about <laughs> Japanese dubs on this show. Now you got me curious. Was there a Japanese... Co- there probably was. I'm sure that's... Yes. dubbed this in Japanese. Okay, there you go. It wasn't on the DVD, um, I don't think. Actually, I did a little bit of research. I haven't actually seen any clips of it, but I know a Japanese dub exists. Hang on a second. I'm, check- I'm checking the back of the box here. I'm checking to see if there's an... I know there's an English and a French audio of this on the DVD... I think those are the only ones. Yeah, they only included yeah, two, so only too. two audio tracks. Sometimes you get more. Like sometimes I've seen movies where they had French, Spanish, and German. I believe all in one. Yeah. So. Um, and in Celestine's case, um, actually, I would say it's her first encounter with Ernest. The uh, don't eat me. And ju- yeah, and just their their back and forth through that whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, where they introduce themselves and Ernest tries to bite her and she immediately smacks him in the face. <laughs> like the comedic timing in this film is perfect. Yeah, that's something else I'd c- and I commend on the art side too, because they're like you see the way that this art looks and you expect it to be for like long flowy shots uh, that. You know, take a long time to complete. This film's really good at punched-up animation too. There's a lot of quick slapsticky movements in it, and like like you were saying, it plays up for the comedic elements that they were going for. Honestly, as a whole, I would say um, both Ernest and Celestine are probably my favorite performances of the film. Um, Forrest Whitaker and Mackenzie Foy knocked it out of the park. Excellent. Um, so with that, I think it's time for our final thoughts on the film. Well, th- this is um, a dub that I'm really glad was created. And honestly, I have heard this. I've seen this movie in English more times than I have in French. Um, and that's because it is actually very good. Um, I've had my qualms with the um, ramped up cartoonish side of it. And again, that's kind of just because that's the part of the movie that I think gravitates a little bit more with the localized team the, the people the, the audience that they were going for but honestly mm-hmm. uh, that's not a bad thing at all it's something that i think um is kind of incremental in the development of the nyv's 
uh, handling of other subject material. Um, and we, we would see them go on to adapt other uh, properties that uh, I think, honestly, were even stronger than this one. So if this was like a stepping stone for the duo of Michael and Stephanie to uh, go from being pretty good adapters to excellent adapters uh, for things that we saw like, um, uh, what's a good, like Your Name or... Um, God, I can't. I'm not thinking this off the top of my head. Um, list something else, Roots. Uh, ooh. Oh, Lou over the wall. Oh, there we go. Um, I was about to say something like the Rabbi's Cat, but I think the Rabbi's <laughs> Cat actually came before Ernest and Celestine. It did. I, I remember. I have a copy of that too, and that was also something that predates this. Actually, from... in um. Actually, I think um, A Cat in Paris might be a good example. That was also, um, that, that was think... even before Ernest and Celestine. But that, that used... Oh, okay, that was still before. That used a lot more um, uh, anime actors. Like, the thief in that movie is actually played by Steve Bloom. So I... Yeah, I, I really like that aspect of it. Um, and I, I actually do really enjoy this film. Um... Like, the animation is absolutely spectacular. It is... Oh, my God. Unless you've seen something like The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Um, ah. It's really something you're not going to be accustomed to, and it is just... It will blow your mind. I have to, I have to imagine that that was uh, probably a reverse influence on it, because, like, it would be in the fact that um, Ghibli influenced the filmmakers in this... And then I have to imagine that they that Ghibli saw this and uh, Isao Takahata decided to use a similar style when he made um, when he made that movie. Like I, I think the entire time it was meant to be like an ukiyo-e sort of inspired. Yeah, but yeah, I, I could definitely see that as well. Um, I do happen to really like the dub of this. Um, it is kind of tricky getting celebrity talent to do an animation dubs um as i have said in the mary and the witch's flower and the dark crystal episodes mm -hmm. you get a very good sense of what actors are actually trained to do their own adr mm -hmm. when it comes to actually you know, doing Hollywood-style films where you'd have to go back and maybe punch up a line or two. Um, it really lets you know which actors are capable of doing that on their own and which um, you would have to get, like, a sound-alike because they're maybe not so great at vocalizing in a sound studio setting. It's been said by ADR directors that the one... the, the um... The kind of actors, like uh, celebrity actors who do the best uh, in dubbing, are those who come from a musical background. Um, I don't, I'm actually not sure if uh, any of the people that we've talked about have come from like uh, singing or performing uh, instruments or not. But um, in any case, like um, whatever their backgrounds were, yeah, I definitely think they brought their their best talents to this without um, sounding like just a celebrity doing a thing. Like, there's there's no Disney dubifying yeah. problems in here. It definitely doesn't feel like a sort of DreamWorks animation kind of mm. 
And I'm, I'm talking like the actual cinematic, like the early, the, the Shreks of Madagascar's, uh... <laughs> We, we don't we don't talk about that era. That that was a dark dark era. We we tried to move past. We've moved on to the golden age of you know the panda expresses and the how to train your dragons and you know the the better films and the well I guess uh, me and my shadow never got made, but I'm sure it would have been a classic if it finally came out. Maybe one of these days. I'm, um, I'm only mentioning that because one of the artists who worked on that has been releasing um, test footage that they did for that film, and it's like, we could have had this, and we just never did. We, Mark Dindle, why didn't you make this movie? <laughs> Mark Dindle's the guy who did um, uh, Cats Don't Dance and The Emperor's New Groove, and he was supposed to direct that movie, ah. too. Um, so the point I'm trying to get with that is, um, you know... Packing the cast full of stars for the sake of studying it with stars. Uh, it this does not feel like that was the case. Um, hmm. No, I do feel like the dub was impeccably cast. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot envision anyone else different in the roles. Okay. Um. I think both Michael Center Nicholas and Stephanie Shea did a really great job with the material they were given as well. Uh, the dialogue shines. Um, everybody is given an opportunity to do what they do best within the confines of the performance that was shown to them originally. Um, I just really love this movie. I do too, and I I love it in French. I love it in English. I just love this movie to death, and I like I I really want to share this with other people. And you know, maybe when you know all this is over with what's going on with the world and you know the dub talk crew is able to reunite in one state again <laughs> um i would love to bring this with me to to show the rest of the team oh ab absolutely if we're we're picking this to show to everyone if we've had to sit through devil's line and um Udapri and um the first couple of those are you hockey show and everything else that everyone suggested all of which are great cartoons by the way um, we're definitely adding this to that list of things to show everyone. Oh, yes. Charge Man Ken. That's um, another thing that we showed, that we had to watch. <laughs> Charge Man Ken. The greatest <laughs> anime ever made. Absolutely. Now, if you the in the audience are curious to check out Ernest and Celestine, uh, there are a couple very easy ways you can do this. Um... First of all would be to purchase a Blu-ray, which is regularly available at whichever home video market you choose to purchase it from. Um, it is also widely available for digital purchase to own um, on services like YouTube, Amazon, and, you know, the... the big it's on itunes it's on google play it's yeah you can find it just about everywhere for a couple of bucks it can be yours i believe it is also streaming for free on it or you know 
free with subscription subscription to amazon prime uh um have to look that up. I, I don't want to mislead people, but I believe that it's one of those movies that you have to pay a little extra for. Okay. Um, but there is one other way you can actually watch this for free. That's right. Um, if you happen to have your local library card, mm -hmm. you can get access to a streaming service called Canopy. With a K. With a K. Now, Canopy is a streaming service that partners with local library networks to provide films and educational materials for to basically get more out of your library membership. Mm -hmm. um, all that it requires to be a part of this streaming service is, you know, your library card. Um, if you are a member of a local library, you can get access to it. H have you used this I service before? Um, I use my nephew's library card, so but I um, I need to get my own. I was just going to ask because I I also have I have a library card, and I've heard of this of Canopy before. Um, actually, long before. Uh, recently, G Kids added a lot of their films to Canopy's streaming capabilities, um, but I have not actually gone through the process of signing up for it yet. So I wanted to know if you would, if you recommend it based on your own experiences with it. Um, I don't have person personal experiences I can share with the Canopy service. Mm -hmm. um, I do know the catalog is actually pretty impressive, though. That I do know as well. So um, I'm. I guess uh, after this, I will probably add that to my list. There's been a lot of um, a lot of films I've been mean to get around to that I've actually been able to recently. So thank you, human malware. Yeah. Um, once the whole national crisis kind of dies down, I will probably go get my library card to start tinkering with the service and seeing the full capabilities it has. But I do. Canopy was actually part of the reason I wanted to really get this episode out in the first place because it's a really cool service mm -hmm. uh, on paper that I wanted to bring more attention to. Oh, yeah. Like, if you were looking so, for... Yeah, if, if any of you people out there were, like, on the fence about trying Canopy, we I think we can both highly recommend that this film itself is a good enough reason to give it a try. Oh, absolutely. Y you will not... I, I know I say absolutely a lot over the course of this episode, but yeah. this is like... <laughs> like, if you're going to sign up for a streaming service that you can get for free, provided you have, like, one little not-too-hard-to-obtain caveat... <laughs> Um, for one movie, Urza and Celestine will, would be that movie. Uh, it was definitely nominated for an Academy Award for a reason. Um, but now we are at the point of the show where we have some people to thank. And I just knocked my microphone, or my headphone cord out. There we go. Well, uh, you go ahead and read those off. I'll leave, uh, I have to go check on something. Yeah, I'm still recording. 
Okay, uh, just need to take a sec to pull up the list. I probably should have had it up in the first place, but... There we go. Alright, so this is the portion of the show where we thank our Patreon patrons. Um... Our Patreon patrons definitely help to not only put out more content for you guys, but to also be encouraged to experiment a little more with the format of Dub Talk. Um, the format we are currently using for the episode of Ernest and Celestine Dub Talk Alternative could not have happened without our patrons. Um, and at the $5 tier... For our shoutouts, um, we have B. Morris, Crimson Echidna, Michelle Travis, Miraculous Corazon, and Nico Robin, but with the owie hands. Um, at our $10 tier, we have Carly Lessicow, Jacob Wilson, J2, aka Jared, Julia W., and Marissa Lenti. Seriously, guys. If you are signed up for our Patreon, we cannot thank you enough. You guys are amazing, and you guys deserve all of the all of the chocolate and all of the marshmallows. Mm. Just make sure you keep an eye on the chocolate on the stove. Make sure it doesn't burn. Indeed. Um, so if you want to catch up on what we're all doing, um, we are at twitter.com slash dubtalkpodcast. Um, odds are good you're watching this on our YouTube channel, so go ahead to the down there parts, um, like, subscribe, leave a comment, especially if you'd like to see more of these experimental episodes, um, within the sphere of the Dub Talk Alternative banner. Mm -hmm. Um, as I've mentioned before, we've done the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, we've done Castlevania, we've done... Kipo in the Age of Wonder Beasts. Season 2. And we'd love to do more of these. Indeed. Um, we actually have a couple more in the pre-planning stages. So. Stay tuned. Absolutely. If you want to see more, let us know. Uh, this podcast is also available on an audio-only feed via Podbean. So, if you have friends who might be interested in the Dub Talk podcast who, you know, might not be interested in listening to a podcast on YouTube, we have an audio option for them. Um, so, Noah, why don't you let the fine folks here on the internet know where we can find you? My name is Noah Clue, and you can find me on Twitter at Noah Clue. Uh, I like to talk about the world of animation outside of just Japan. And this is actually a perfect uh, example of that, because Lord knows that the world of animation is much wider than any one person can watch in their entire lifetime. 
And you can also follow me on YouTube, at Journey Traveler, where I have not made anything for quite a while, but in the ideal world, that is where I make videos talking about the history and development of animation, which maybe I'll get around to that once uh, life stops being crazy. Who knows when that will be? Um, and I am Roots of Justice. You can find me on the Twitter.com at Roots of Justice, where I mainly retweet cute animal pics, talk general fandom, and just. I'm generally fun to be around, I think. Like, <laughs> come give me a follow. Have a good time. So humble. Like, I also retweet a lot of funny stuff. You're, you're gonna get a laugh. Yeah, he does. I, I follow the man. Never look back once. Um, I also have a blog that I'm kind of off and on working on stuff for that doesn't typically end up getting posted. Um, I'm currently working on some reviews for What We Do in the Shadows and The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Um, hopefully sometime this century they will be made available somewhere. Uh, keep an eye on that aforementioned Twitter feed because if they end up getting posted that's where that information will end up. And with that, I think we have concluded our review of the Ernest and Celestine Duff. We have finished our painting, we have finished our music, and we are ready to close the chap the book on this chapter. So, thank you, Roots. This is a lot of so, fun. So, oh man. I... Thank you for even kind of pushing me into watching this movie. Absolutely, and I'm very glad that you, you seem to have picked up the um, the repertoire of G-Kids as well, since you already know about movies like The Rabbi's Cat, A Cat in Paris, and Princess Kaguya. So I think you're well on your way to being a true animation expert yourself. Why, thank you, Noah. Keep those tapes circulating, folks. So I uh, Remember to circulate those URLs. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so um, I guess um, aloha, and uh, keep watching those French cartoons, people. Je suis otaku on there, devas. <laughs> Where'd I put my jelly beans? <laughs> that is a story of how we met. And after this, will there be other stories, Ernest? <laughs> There'll be plenty of other stories, Celestine.